Hi, it's John Joffin, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, welcome back, writer, director, producer, Ben Rock, to another fine episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Why, thank you, Ilya Friedman, uh, purveyor of fine cameras from Hot Rod Cameras. Hey, who do we have on the show today? Oh, I'm very, very thrilled that we've got cinematographer John Joffin ASC on the show. He is perhaps best known for the stuff he's done recently, Star Trek Picard. He just uh, wrapped uh, season three. And he, of course, also worked on the series Schmigadoon, which is uh, quite popular. Oh, it's awesome. And uh, of course, I know him from way back when, way, way back when, one of his earliest roles, he was one of the DPs on X-Files. And uh, yeah, that, that was the first the first time he ever came on my radar. And boy, I, I, I really enjoyed X-Files. With Pioneering that one, so. work on that show. Yeah. And now close focus. What do we have to talk about today, Ben? There's a lot of stuff going on. A lot of stuff going on, although like the strike, I feel like I don't actually know if the Writers Guild is in active negotiations or if everyone's just holding their breath while they wait for SAG to strike or not strike. And then SAG and the AMPTP companies decided to put a pin in it until after the 4th of July holidays. I don't know the exact date that they're going to have concluded by. And then there was a huge kerfuffle just today as we're recording with Fran Drescher being in France doing some photo ops and there being discussions about the bad optics of her not being at the actual negotiations Hmm. Whatever. I don't know if she was negotiating on Zoom, went out, did a photo op. And went, I don't I don't honestly know, but I must admit it. It has a French laundry style bad optics to it, no matter how in the right she might be. But one of the things we wanted to talk about was uh, who's becoming, uh, I think, the face of the AMPTP, David Zaslav. For sure. And, Who we mentioned on the show before, uh, specifically with uh, Boston University chanting, pay your writers, uh, yeah. you know, at the commencement yeah, when he was speech. Doing yeah. a, he was doing a commencement address and basically got shouted down by the students. Uh, yeah. So he's the CEO of uh, Warner Discovery and off to a rocky start. I think I'll it's fair so. to say. The Flash kind of drastically underperformed. The switch from HBO Max to just Max, wherein all the... Mm. Discovery Channel. Not, not the smoothest, especially that whole like taking every writer and director and calling them a creator, that whole yeah. thing. Yeah, that was a that yeah, was yeah, a moment yeah. which they quickly backtracked on. So this week there was an interesting article that was uh, put up by GQ and then taken down by GQ. That and was, then put up again by GQ and then taken down again by GQ. Well, so put up in a, rewrit- in a rewritten manner that went against the article writer's intention and then taken back down. And I wouldn't say that it stinks of impropriety, all of it, but I would say that it has poor optics, mm-hmm. which is that I believe it is one of the editors of GQ. So basically, it's an article and we can link to it in the show notes because it we was... We will link ob- to the show, in the show notes because there is a archive of it on yeah, the web. The, there's an archive of it, and it's pretty scathing. It's a pretty scathing attack on David Zaslav's entire approach. And it's something that I have personally complained about uh, apart from David Zaslav, which is 
to me, one of the downfalls of our business was the day that what we make started to be referred to as content. Mm -hmm. And Zaslav is someone who uh, explicitly said, we're going to get out of the cable business and into the content business. And the read of it in the article that was taken down is that basically the idea was, let's get away from educational programming of any kind, which is what Discovery Channel was all about. And let's get into Naked and Afraid, which was one of Zaslav's uh, brain children. Mm. Along um, with Dr. Pimple Popper and my 600 pound life. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to be down on Dr. Pimple Popper because I actually think it's a pretty good show. And it I've never comes seen from, it, but it comes, it comes, it's not the worst thing ever. I mean, there is a okay. super gross out effect of it. So I get that. Anyway, I think it's worth reading the article. But then on top of it, it was, uh, I believe, an editor at GQ who, in the wake of this, got a deal for a movie at Warner Brothers. Yeah, that's really doesn't look good. Or I, they may have already had the deal and they yeah, might have been responsible for killing th- these the story. kinds of things don't happen overnight. You don't just like, oh, uh, take that article down and we'll give you a movie. That is not a deal that I believe would ever happen at all. It might have greased the wheels if it was already in process. I don't know. Hmm. Well, yeah, the, this story from GQ was from July 3rd. The author has been uh, tweeting about it that you can find him on Twitter uh, as of like July 5th, which is probably about the, the window this but, all went but down. But can you find him on Threads in Blue Sky? Anyway. I don't know. But, you know, let me tell you, people talk about like superhero movie fatigue. I have social network fatigue. I really I really haven't logged on to Threads, Blue Sky, any of, any of these things. And I, I don't. I, I don't, am the I, opposite. I have been on all three. Oh my gosh. And sometimes Mastodon. Anyway, do, but do go on. <laughs> oh, I don't really know if there's too much more to, to say about this horse. It feels pretty dead, but I'm, I'm happy that Cam Noir will host a, a link to the archive of this article where people can go read it because just of my journalistic integrity, I'd, I'd love people to be able, actually able to read what the author had intended versus a hackneyed version that was then removed. There's been a bunch of criticism in a variety article that has come out since this, basically explaining sort of like journalistic practices and how this did not follow them at all. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I think the thing about it is that it it feels like it violates a lot of the idea of impartial journalism. It feels like there's a lot of one hand scratching the other one's back, however that goes. And I just feel like one thing after the next, David Zaslav maybe just wasn't prepared to become himself because he's I feel like he's used to being kind of the faceless CEO of of an entertainment conglomerate. And when he took over Warner, now he's a mogul and now he's thrust into the foreground because he's honestly he's taking big swings and when you take big swings sometimes you make big mistakes and i feel like people are actually okay with that it's just he keeps putting himself right in front of the story and then stepping in it one time after the other and i'm not rooting for warner brothers or hbo's or discovery's downfall i'm not even rooting for david zaslav's downfall i want to see i want to see warner and hbo continue to make great stuff i want discovery to continue to make great stuff i wouldn't mind it if the product of our life's work stopped being called content because to me that belies the actual truth which is that the people who are creating these apps and websites and whatever the thing you're watching on your roku television that's the important thing and then they fill it with some garbage that's the stuff we make 
The stuff we make is just the filler in their genius sandwich. And I don't care for that framing of the work. And I think it does kind of belie a sense of like, yeah, people will watch whatever. They don't give a shit. And Zasloff, in a sense, has become kind of the face of the AMPTP because when shit like this happens during the strike and we see the back channeling and the double dealing and and the the dirtiness of this stuff it, we kind of go oh, okay it, it honestly it just makes the writers all the more sympathetic which i already obviously sympathize with them but it's like hard to sympathize with david zaslov's approach to running this mega media conglomerate and you wonder how long can he run it like this especially in the climate of the strike right now. I think that's yeah. that's really what it comes down to, is that all these missteps, all these embarrassments that have happened in a very short period of time, with the strike currently underway, he may not be directly responsible for the current state of the strike, but he certainly has inherited that, and it doesn't necessarily look like he's going forward with everything he could possibly be doing to try to end the strike, as uh, was reported that he was saying. So it doesn't look like he's doing what he says he is doing. Oof. Well, anyway, I can't encourage people enough to read the article, and I think we should move right on to our interview here. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Our next guest is John Joffin. He has been nominated for many awards, including he's won three ASC awards. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat. John, you first came into sort of my awareness uh, many, many years ago, around the same time as another guy named uh, John Bartley on a show called X-Files. I kind of would like to, to start there. I know it's going back a ways, but I feel like X-Files in some ways has set a little bit of the course of your professional career. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that, too, because I know you do a lot of uh, a lot of sci-fi work, a lot of dramatic work. Can you talk at all about how you came into X-Files and if you feel like that sort of set a tone for the direction you you've gone over the decades. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I came, uh, I was invited to come and do a date call on the show as a camera operator. I came out a few times and it was in early days. The show was huge. It was huge for the time. It's still bigger than anything I've done, the, the amount of money, the amount of resources. And what they would do was they had a second unit running concurrently and we would be doing the really cool things on the second unit. So I just kind of fell into this this job. I was really young. I shot some music videos. I shot some small things. It was just, a, it was a crazy time, but we were doing crazy things. Like we were blowing up trains. We were going in submarines. It was, it was fantastic. Um, it's funny how you ask me how the X-Files affected all my, my following work, because for years, what I would hear, I'd get another job and it would be like, no, you can't have that. This is not the X-Files. And <laughs> <so> that, <laughs> that was kind of a thing. But um, yeah, it was a great show. And, and John Bartley, he did a great look on the show. It was this, it was very new to television. It was very, it was a very dark and bold look. Also, I don't think many people at the time had been doing the wide angle close-ups and they became a real thing on that show. It, well, it was such a massive, massive hit and star maker for David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson. It was 
such a, a massive show at that time. Uh, as far as popularity, uh, Water Cooler and the Zeitgeist, yeah. I know that our, our show producer, Alana Cody, has talked about how she had a job many years ago that uh, allowed her to essentially have something always playing in the background while she was at work. And she had like all of the seasons of the X-Files. And so the X-Files was just like, wow. it was always there. A hu- huge fan. Yeah, it, it was a cultural touchstone. I sure can't was. tell you how many times I saw uh, people wearing Lone Gunman t-shirts. Uh, it was the first time I think I ever saw, yeah. I didn't know who Ozo Motley was, but that that was like, you know, it was one of the the T-shirts. And then also, I want to believe posters. It became like, you know, that that was a thing on in every college dorm room or uh, high school teenagers uh, room. Those I want to believe that I think were were ubiquitous for the the longest time. It's like, no, you you were a a part of a show responsible for a major part of a show that had an impact in popular culture and society. You shouldn't if you don't think that you've uh, you've done anything that has had that sort of impact mm. since I would argue that now you're doing Star Trek and Star Trek is also one of these like major cultural sorts of things but I mean it's really tough to outdo something that has got that sort of popularity that sort of thing like it spawned follow-up series spin-offs uh, feature films all kinds of things I mean it's yeah. it's a it's a wonderful feather and it happened seems to have happened relatively early in your career too so did it open up some doors to people say like oh you shot the X-Files we want to talk to him was that a thing yeah, it definitely did. I mean, the thing the thing was, I was really young, and I didn't I didn't really have a, a career path. It just all happened. It was happenstance. I fell into it. We were doing this insert unit. I didn't really know how big it was, and I was so young. I didn't really know how to manage people or how to run a set. So um, I learned a lot about lighting. I definitely felt like I could light, and I kept. I mean, my lighting keeps. I keep learning all the time. Like I keep getting better at it, just because I'm doing it all the time. But in terms of running people and how to work as a team, that was something I didn't really know about. And that's something, I mean, if any young up-and-coming cinematographers listening, that's just so important. And frankly, it's probably the most important part of the job because you have all these people working with you and sort of under you. And you've got to really, you got to learn how to inspire people. And that's the thing I try to do all the time. I try to hire a crew who's very creative and very committed. And I try to make them all part of the process. I don't want people just doing their jobs. I want people to really care about what they're doing. I want them to go the extra mile. It's also very important to to tell people when they're doing good work all the time. It, it really goes, goes a long way. And also if, you know, people are doing things you possibly don't want, it, it's good to find a nice way to bring that up rather than let it go. But um, yeah, running people and getting along with people is very important because I mean, you're working with like a hundred people on set. It's definitely a lot of personalities. Yeah, that's definitely a huge part of it. Yeah. I think that that's probably the most overlooked part of, of being a, yeah. a cinematographer is that you're actually the head of lighting, camera and grip and that you've got three different departments all looking to you and the uh, marshalling of resources and the organization that goes into all of that. And the the, the human aspect is, uh, you know. Well, let me tell you, if you're not really good at dealing with people, then you're going to have a really hard time at your job. You really have to have, uh, you know, good reciprocal uh, collaborators. Otherwise, you won't make your days. You know, your, your job is going to be miserable. And I think that's why so many people work together so often. They find people that are a good fit and they want to continue yeah. and repeat that experience. Uh, do you still work with some of the same people all the way back from like the X-Files days today? Are you still, uh, you know, working with them? 
Yeah, there's definitely people who've been around and I've been working in the business for maybe 30 years now. So there's people who come up all the time and all the smart people always introduce themselves and say who they are. You go from show to show to show, you're really tight with people. And it's and very often I'll see someone and I just know their face so well. And I'm like, where do I know you from? What have we done? So yeah, paths cross all the time. It's really great. Um, I met a really cool person on the X-Files. It was, uh, I can't remember what season it was, but he was this young writer. He came out, he'd written, it was, I think it was one of the first things he, he'd sold to TV. Nice, nice man with a Southern accent named Vince Gilligan. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> boy, you, oh, yeah. you, you just don't know what people are going to do. I mean, arguably, he's just one of the most successful people in TV and still the nicest guy I hear too. I know people who work with him, but um, it was cool to meet this sweet young guy. And I, I listened to a podcast. He was talking about how he had no money and he scraped the money together to come to Vancouver and visit the set. And yeah, that was really cool. I want to talk about now, actually, a couple of the people we do know in common. And I'm going to ask you actually a little trivia question. You don't have to know the answer to this, but you, you may very well. Do you know who directed and shot the first ever all 4K feature film yeah yeah tom low tom low no 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 it's your operator chris crosscove oh my god and, chris i love that guy so much and lavar burton was the director wow this is going back to 2007 i used to work at a company called dalsa and lavar and chris came in and were like uh, we're really interested in 4K. And at that time, there was basically nobody shooting 4K at all. It was still very much a science experiment. And we kind of gave them the dog and pony show. And we were like, it's really, really brave for you to do this. But you're kind of off the reservation. If things go wrong, you know, we we don't we, we will support you every way we can. But, you know, <laughs> you got to know that this is like really cutting edge, uh, you know, science experiment sort of stuff in some ways. And LeVar and Chris were like, we're up for the challenge. We can do this. And they did a bunch of testing. And sure enough, LeVar directed this movie called Reach For Me, which, uh, you know, Chris shot and did a, a wonderful job. And no one had ever done anything like that before. It was, you know, it was really, That's really amazing. the early days. Well, yeah. Those are uh, two, that, ama two amazing people. LeVar, what a lovely man. And Chris, oh, a huge fan of Chris. Huge and, and so I know that you guys all just work together on Star Trek Picard. So I feel like it's That's a perfect right. time to, to bring that in. It's a really bold look on Star Trek and it's a wonderful look. This is the uh, Picard I'm speaking of. Um, I did watch the second season of Picard and I got to say that uh, I'm a casual Star Trek fan. I'm not a hardcore fan. Yeah. I really thought I might not ever watch another. <laughs> I really never thought I would watch the third season. But I have to say that so many people out there told me like, hey, if you watch the second season, it wasn't really for you. You got to watch this third season. This third mm -hmm. season is is really redemptive and really does does a lot. And I have to credit you with a lot of the way that this show is put together and the visual style. And it feels like a modern look. It feels like even though we're talking about next generation cast, which uh, for the most part was a fair high key show your show is not yeah. high key at all no. your your show is has uh, got a lot of contrast it's got a lot of uh, a lot of uh, style can you talk a little bit about if you felt any sort of like obligations to try to harness looks that have maybe come from more of the uh, the feature reboots or from the original series how did you craft the style of star trek picard season three yeah, that's a big, that's a good question. It's a big question. It is. I know. <laughs> uh, take, take, take your time on this. That's yeah. a, I know I, I threw a lot in there. So. 
Yeah, well, I'll go back to that first meeting I had with Doug and Terry, and and we talked about it, and they'd looked at they'd looked at my reel, and they'd seen things on my reel that they really liked, and they were like, "Why can't our show look like that? How do we get that big, rich, cinematic kind of look?" And that was that word "cinematic" is thrown around so much, but it it really is a good word. So. You know, I started talking to them and I said, you know, there's a couple of things I think you need to do. I said, I think you should try and avoid shooting with three cameras and you should really, there's a, there's an angle that you can keep the cameras in. You want to stay on that shadow side. You don't want to break that angle. So you can use three cameras, but you have to use them strategically. That's the first thing you need to do. And then the second thing is, I think you need bigger, softer light sources, because it seemed to me that a lot of the way the ship was lit, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a smart way to do it. It's a lot of sky panels with, with chimeras, and they're just up, you know, they're above the set, and they come, you know, they come down, and they're easy to work with because you can, you know, you can shoot 360, and that was the other thing I said. You don't have to shoot 360 all the time. You can save it, and also 180 can look pretty good, too. It doesn't always have to be 360, you know, and then when you do that 360, it has a lot of impact as well. So it was more about being more selective about the shots we were doing and, and also having more quality to the lights. And and for me, I think you have these faces. You have LeVar Burden, you have Jonathan Frakes, you've got Patrick Stewart, you've got Gates, you've got all the wonderful looking actors. They deserve good close-ups and they're great actors. So when you go to a close-up, treat them nicely and give them a good close-up. And it's it's funny because I was asked, what is a hallmark to me? What is a hallmark Star Trek show? How do you do a Star Trek? And it's not about doing fancy shots. It's about doing good close-ups that can see the performance. So that's what I that's what I tried to do too, to give those beautiful close-ups wherever I could. And then we wanted to be bold with the look too. We didn't we didn't want it to feel like they were on a set. I pitched the idea it needed to be real. The, the film that I pitched, weirdly enough, is not Star Trek. It's a Star Wars show, but it's Rogue One. Because to me, Rogue One is the, it's a fantasy film, but it looks realistic so you can believe the fantasy. And, and I feel the same way about Andor, too. I think Andor is stunning beyond belief. So I pitched that idea, and I really wanted to push that kind of look. And if you look at it, it's got the thin focus, which I think is really great because it really pushes your eye where you want it to go. It's got the rich, soft, natural lighting. It feels like the light's coming from a source. It's not just the light that's up on a grid. It's got it's got a reason to it. So that's what we tried to do, and they, they like that idea too. I also liked there's some elements of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek that I really like too. But when you talk about honoring the look of Star Trek, I think you've got Dave Blass, great production designer. He's got these great sets, you know? So you've got the great sets. You've got the incredible costumes. You've got these incredible faces. You have Star Trek. It's all there. It's just how do I take that and present it in a real yet rich way? Like I, I've seen shows that try to be real, yet they don't take care. They don't sculpt or they don't put the camera in the right position. I just wanted to do justice to everything that was in front of me. So I didn't feel I didn't feel like I needed to mimic a, an old look. It was all there. I just wanted to portray it in more of a real way. And here's another example. Um, towards the end, when they end up in the in the Borg lair, typically the Borg is it's usually green, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. Why is it green? It's not really green for a reason. It's just like this stage, you know, stage green light. So it's the official Borg we, color. You know, it's it's green. That's right. But we took that Borg color and we said that my gaffer Lynn Levine, genius, absolute genius, worked with him. 
and we came up with an industrial green, so it felt real. And then we mm-hmm. wanted to offset it with some orange, so it became sodium. So we just try to be as real as possible. That was a that was our thing. Yeah, and I think it was really successful too. I feel like certainly with the Borg, it's dark and industrial, and uh, I'll say it doesn't feel like Borg that we've seen before. And I think that's probably yeah. a great bit of diversity that we get to see because previously in the series, it's all kind of like felt. Uh, I'm not going to say paint by numbers, but it's like yeah. you, you knew what was coming. This did not yeah. feel like that. It still felt like it's from the same universe, but it's not. Yeah. It, it wasn't what we'd seen a, a dozen times before. Um, I think that it's true. You get to play on these incredible sets. You get to play with this incredible production and costume design. Was there a lot of thought that went in? And you do have beautiful close-ups, but was there a lot of thought that had to do with camera height and camera placement? I really noticed that I felt like every time, and there's a lot that takes place in these corridors and sort of the yeah. uh, traditional like, uh, oh, the ship's under attack and you have to have a bunch of actors all lurch and jiggle the camera at the, at the same time. Uh, was there a, sort of a visceral thrill of getting to do some of that, to do these wide angle shots where you've got the choreography of, of a half a dozen actors all flinging themselves in one direction or another? Yeah, I mean, um, I was uh, I watched a lot of Star Trek Next generation so I, I knew the show but to be on the set the first time we started doing that I was I was somewhere between smiling and crying it, it was just <laughs> such a such a thing to be there but um, uh, they're really great at it they're really good at it we've been doing it for so long um, the one other thing that was amazing though was we they rebuilt the enterprise and it's rebuilt to the square inch which was tough on me because like I wanted some of the lights to be bigger and wider and I've tested the waters with that. They're like, nope, they're not gonna happen. So that was a tricky set because that was the set that needed to be lit in a way that people remembered it. Mm. So it was a fine line between using the modern lighting and going back to the way people remembered it. So when we see it for the first time, it was always warm. That's one thing. The next gen was always warm. So we honored that. But the first time we saw it, when they do the big reveal and they come onto the ship, we made it brighter than typically season three of Picard was because we really wanted to, we wanted it to feel exactly the way it was. So we did a bit of that, but then luckily they got into sort of a battle and the ship's getting attacked. So at that point I could go darker and I could flash the lights and and do that sort of thing. But the first time we saw it, it was really important. That was pretty amazing watching those actors file in the first morning when they were doing our blocking, just seeing them tear up. And it was, I mean, it was an exact replica. It was, it was insane. And, And they built it. It cost a lot of money too. And I think, I don't think we shot for more than four days. It was like three and a half days, maybe. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it was exciting. So I alluded to this a little bit at the beginning, but you've done a lot of drama and a lot of science fiction, but you yeah. do also from time to time get to break out and do some other stuff. I know that uh, you've got to work on the the second season of uh, Shmigadoon, you know, Apple's uh, streaming series. Can you talk about how you address working on a, on a broader comedy versus like the dramatic work? How do you uh, how do you approach that? Or are you trying just to continue what's already established? How, how's a different lighting and working between uh, yeah. You know, uh, drama and science fiction and and something like Schmigadoon. Yeah, well, well, Schmigadoon was really exciting because it's a musical and it's a musical that honors Cabaret, Chicago, Godspell, Hair, Umbrellas of Cherbourg. So I got to watch all those films and I got to honor that. So so that was great. But I went on to Schmigadoon right after 
was directly after Star Trek. And I'd seen the first season of Schmigadoon. I'd watched a few of the episodes. And that is sort of, it's an earlier look and it's a sort of a brighter look. And it's, there aren't that many looks, genres within in the show. And so when I was approached about it and I got the call from my agent, I was like, ah, I don't think I want to do that, you know. But when I met with him, I met with Stinko Paul, the showrunner. He wrote all the music. He wrote all the songs. He's, he's, he's brilliant. He wrote Minions and Despicable Me. Comes from animation. He's just one of a kind. And this is his first live action thing. So he's got this really interesting, like he knows exactly how he wants the show to be. But anyway, we're having the, the meeting and not sure I want to do the show. And then uh, they do this pitch and they start showing me uh, the boards that Jamie McCall, the production designer, had prepared. And they were unbelievable. They were dark and they were rich. And halfway through, I knew this is, oh, and I saw the costumes. And Angus Strathy, costume designer, he did Moulin Rouge. Unbelievable. Mm. I, mark my words, he's going to get an Emmy nomination. There's no question. And I just knew I wanted to do that show. So it was really great. And I wanted to do the show. They wanted it to be dark. But they also wanted me to walk the line because it's Lorne Michaels' show, and he had said it can't be dark or people aren't going to watch it. So I have to find that balance, but it was good. I found that balance. But the coolest part about the whole show was they wanted Cinco, even though it's not the correct time period, he wanted a three-strip Technicolor look. And mm. so I didn't know, I honestly, I've shot a lot of film, but obviously never, I'm not that old to <laughs> shoot Technicolor. So I had to figure out how I would make this three-strip Technicolor look, yet also make it look a little bit light. And then I wanted to put my own touch because with Technicolor, they were shooting through colored filters, low ASA film. They had to blast the light. There was no finessing of the light. So that part didn't appeal to me, but I decided I wanted to do the look, and but I wanted to do my soft contrast kind of look. And I worked with Jill Bogdanowicz, who's an amazing colorist, just an absolute genius. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Joker. <laughs> she was funny too because when I said, uh, "Are you? Do you want to do this musical?" She goes, "Oh yeah, I'm totally interested. I want to do it." And she goes, uh, "You know, you can tell them I've done a period film. I did the Grand Budapest Hotel." And <laughs> but she just said it in such a humble kind of way. It was like, "Don't worry, we don't need your references. You're going to get the job." But uh, she built this beautiful lot, and we used her lots, and then we built on it with the lighting. It was it was a lot of fun, and the music was so great too. And then it was more more of an observational kind of film. It was more like we were watching a lot of the performances were which needed to be like we were watching a stage play. So we had to shoot them in an interesting way, yet still feel like we were watching the stage performance. And a, a lot of it meant you know big head to toe wide shots. Yeah, you wanted to feel like you were the audience in a the theater. But yeah, it was a lot of fun to do. It sounds awesome. And uh, you directed something and shot something recently as part of a promotion for Sony. Had, had you ever directed anything before? Or is this, is this your, your first outing as a director? No, this was the first thing that I felt like I truly directed because it was a lot of, it was casting and I wrote this little script. I found this beautiful song. The whole piece, it's, it's based on memories. And uh, the, the song was written by this amazing Canadian artist. His name's John Bryant. Mm. And I fell in love with the song, and then I met him, and I was talking to him, and he'd written the song for his wife, Bree, who is a beautiful person. Uh, she's an actress, too. He's an actor. So I thought, why don't I talk to them, see what kind of memories I can find from them, and see if I can put together this little story. And um, they talked about these great memories. They talked about how he was in the recording studio, and she showed up with an ice cream cake. You know, it was all these little things. And, you know, I started piecing them together as a story. 
And then one of the other most exciting things they ever did was skydiving. So mm. we actually, we did the skydiving. I didn't want them to skydive because I was worried about the safety aspect, but we had doubles who skydived. But our dolly grip, Chris Walsh, he's actually a skydiver and he's done something like 2,000 dives. So I called him and I said, hey, what are the chances of us putting a, a Venice body on you and using the Rialto? Are you familiar with the Rialto? Uh, very familiar with it. Yeah, we, yeah. my, my yeah. company sells them. Yeah. Yeah, he had the camera on his belly and he went skydiving holding the camera and uh, he got some beautiful footage. We really lucked out. It was, um, we were shooting all day and there were, it was like uh, the aviator. We were shooting and there were no clouds. <laughs> I couldn't figure out why I didn't like it. Yeah. I've got it playing actually in, in the background right now too. And uh, what strikes me is that there is this incredible sort of feeling of nostalgia through the whole thing. These wonderful, like warm, yeah. golden light tons of slow motion, but it also, I mean, it, it's short, it's, it's three and a half minutes, but I think I've counted like 60 locations or something. It's like, you have all these different <laughs> looks, all these wildly different looks. It looks like this would have taken uh, a month to put together. I'm assuming you didn't have that, but it's no. like, it's absolutely gorgeous. And you've got all this, this different stuff. Can you just talk about how you put this together? I'm sure it wasn't unlimited budget. I'm sure it wasn't unlimited no, time. No. And you're packing in, it's probably 45 different locations with all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah, and, big uh, stuff. <laughs> people, times of day, not just the skydiving, but you've got fireworks, you've got beaches, you've got the forest, you've got, it looks like the desert. You got all this stuff. You got, you know, urban settings. How did you, how did you pull this off? Well, basically I was given this amount of money, this small amount of money. Mm -hmm. And because I've worked with so many people and I have such a great team in Vancouver, I had gaffer and I had, I have my operator and my camera crew and my DIT. They all wanted to be a part of it. So they all did it and they were just, everyone was given a nominal fee. I couldn't afford to pay full fees. We should have had an accountant, but we didn't. I did all the accounting. I did all the booking. <laughs> we oh, uh, we wow. made sure that people were fed very well. We made sure that people were excited. But honestly, it was just such a great project to do because I was directing and shooting, so I could make all the decisions I wanted to make. And the only person I could disappoint was myself. When you were running around and shooting this, how large was the crew? Was it really just like a handful of you guys working out of a van or did you have the, the full trucks and, and all no, of the above? No, not the full trucks. We had exactly just what we needed. We had small trucks. We were working out of two panel vans, basically, mm -hmm. two sprinters. But, yeah. um, you know, we did when we were shooting in Vancouver, when we shot, we shot for four days when we shot, you know, all the fireworks stuff and the diner and the rock and roll, all of that, that was all permitted and that was all paid for locations. But when we went to the beach, we didn't have permits. And in that case, we probably had six people of that, six or seven people, but we were very stealthy about it. But it's funny how you can just go somewhere and just shoot and people don't really they won't really give you a hard time if you just kind of shoot like you. I mean, we took, you take the ferry from Vancouver Island, you take it over to the island and we were just shooting on the ferry and everyone said, no, you can't shoot on the ferry. They'll never let you. You can't get a permit. We set up the camera in front of the captain. He was like looking at us out there. We were just, you know, like we just shot. No one gave us a hard time at all. Well, I think the filmmaker gods were smiling on you because it can, it can so easily go the other way sometimes as well. <laughs> oh, as totally. well so. Yeah, completely. 
Hey, uh, John, I think this is a, a really good place to leave it, but tell me, is do you have an official website or an Instagram? Yeah, I've got this very imaginative Instagram name. It's John Joffin, one word. <laughs> and if you want to see on my agency, Datner Despoto, you can go on their website and you can look at my reel. Yeah, I'm out there. I'm on Instagram. I'm, I'm fairly active. I love Instagram. I love seeing what other people are doing. I love the photographs. I think it's uh, it's a great platform. So, yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a lot of fun. I can't wait to check out what you shoot next. Thank you very much. Great chatting with you. All right. So that was John Joffin. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, and awesome stuff. I, I awesome. Awesome. We're going to be in town at the same time, and I hope that uh, we get to meet up. Hey, Ben, you know what time it is. What time would that be, Ilya? Bill paying time. Oh, yes. It's bill paying time. we got to thank our friends over at uh, Aperture, fine sponsors of the show. Aperture, makers of high-quality, entry-level lighting that has been moving further and further up the food chain now for years. They're continuing to make stuff oh, yeah. that is uh, appearing on bigger and bigger sets. I told and you, the, the, the set I worked on in February, almost every light instrument was an Aperture light. I can't say what movie it is, but I do know that a big Hollywood movie used a ton of aperture lights on it. And uh, I believe they're going to be able to, to talk about that soon. But that's a huge one. I'll just say it was a multiple hundred million dollar production. So, yeah, they've got some real uh, heat behind them. And speaking of which, by the time this episode drops... It will be Amazon Prime Day, which I'm sure they'll be making a ton of noise about. Amazon, of course, one of the, the largest retailer in, in the world at this point. Prime Day is sort of like their big sale that they do for Prime members in the middle of the summer. And so it's going to, turns out it's going on today. They've got a big sale and Aperture is doing a sale to go along with Prime Day. And you do not have to buy your Aperture products directly through Amazon to take advantage of that. As a matter of fact, Hot Rod Cameras and many other companies out there will also also be matching that sale and allowing for sales with the same discount directly through retailers. Um, in addition to that, Hot Rod Cameras is actually doing a open box and demo unit sale at the same time. Many of those items are also Aperture items, so we've got even bigger sales going on. So it's a really, really big sale. One for Amazon, two for Aperture, and three for Hot Rod Cameras. If you want to buy Aperture products and you go to Hot Rod Cameras, you're going to save even more, especially if you get an open box or B-stock item. And that is going on right now. I'm not exactly sure when it's going to end, but I do know the open box B-stock sale, I think, goes on till at least Friday. So if you're listening to this show right away, you've got a chance to save some extra money. And I just want to mention how unprecedented this is, at least for Hot Rod. We do not usually have sales and we have a tendency to really hold on to a lot of open box b-stock stuff because it becomes demo stuff and loaner units in our shop but we are getting rid of all of it so we're really clearing stuff out we've never done this in our 15 year history so it's kind of a it's kind of a big sale big big 15 years oh my god i, I know it's crazy January, it'll be 15 years. So, you know, we're closer, oh we're closer now to 15 than not. So, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. That's man. I feel so old. I remember you <laughs> coming into my driveway with your first little PL adapter. And I was like, that's brilliant. Uh, well, thanks. That, that was a, it's a long time ago now. I can't believe I got a, I got a 14 year old kid at home. So. <laughs> <laughs> and now short ends. So, Ben, it's our short end time of the show. You got something that uh, is your obsession? You got something that you're that you're all about? 
I do, but before I even get into it, I wanted to do a plug for our the composer of every bit of music. We we talk about him every episode of the show, Kay's Alatrachi. And I know I always talk about how Kay's is like the most multi-hyphenate of multi-hyphenates I've ever known. And he directs, he edits, he does color correction, he does CGI. And all of this comes together in a project that he just dropped. It's a music video from a band called Snakes of Russia called Summoner. It's like an electronica thing. I'm I'm watching it right now as you I, talk I about it. I sound like an old man. It's like an electronica thing. <laughs> it's, it's really freaking cool. Actually, yeah. dude, this thing is really, really cool. It it's looks awesome. great. Yeah, it was uh, shot by somebody named Curtis Davis. Looks amazing. Uh, black and white cinematography. It's got a lot of freaky jellyfish floating through the sky that look pretty dang photoreal. I, I'm not a VFX supervisor, but they look pretty pretty goddamn good to me. Anyway, I just wanted to uh, give Kay's a big shout out because he's been a big supporter of ours. And I think this is a really cool video. We can put the, a link in the show notes. Check it out. It's on YouTube. Looks really cool. Hire Kay's to do uh, whatever you're hiring someone to do because he does everything. Literally. Yeah, I'm going to share this with a bunch of people because this is uh, really freaking cool. And uh, I think that a lot of people will get a kick out of it. And uh, knowing Kay's and how he can do so many things, I'm guessing he did so many things for this. It really is like, you know, he's probably his, his listening baby. to this in his car and he's like, no, you jackasses. Somebody else did the compositing and somebody else did the color <laughs> correction. But he didn't mention that. It doesn't say it on the YouTube page. So I'm going with Kay's did everything. Yeah, I think that that's fair. All right. So, Ben, do you have another short end besides Kay's music video? Or, yeah, so or, okay. I, I, I know I've been telling uh, I, I've talked about this a few times on here, so I'm, I'm trying not to milk this out as my short end. But I, I keep learning more <laughs> about Unreal Engine and uh. MetaHuman. And I came across a YouTube channel that I think uh, if people are interested in seeing the potential in this, it is worth looking at it. It's uh, JS Films with a Z. So it's J-S-F-I-L-M-Z on YouTube. I don't know anything about this filmmaker, but he is kind of just dicking around with the capabilities of MetaHuman. And he has also made his own custom helmet rig that you can order from him. And on his site, like even today, he posted a, a new video where he's just showing you the same exact image at different resolution, rendered at different resolutions to help if you're thinking about using Unreal Engine and MetaHuman to create stuff like this, to say like, okay, this is what you get out of HD. This is what you get out of 4K. This is what you get out of 6K. Uh, but he's got a lot of cool demos on there that kind of show uh, very cinematic stuff. And I feel like when I look at his stuff, uh, the MetaHuman, it's like, I know that it's metahuman and there's still something. Um, I was actually talking to Kay's about it in case. Uncanny Valley. There's something about the mouth. It's like like he in some of these videos, he has a metahuman moving in and like stretching their face around and doing weird stuff. And then like off to the left, he'll put the video of himself doing it. So it, it's the video that it's using as reference. And it's pretty. I don't know, man. I mean, yeah, there's something vaguely uncanny valley about it a little bit but it's when you think that like this is a free software that that's doing all this and it's driving it off of your phone yeah one can only imagine where this could go even in a, a year or less like it's made big leaps even since i've been paying any attention to it and i've only really been paying attention to it for about six months anyway i i would just encourage people to check out js films with a z he strikes me as like some guy who's kind of kicking the tires on this technology and trying to figure out what he can use it for 
and showing you kind of how he's doing it. And he's getting very, very professional results. That's awesome. So, Ilya, what is your pet obsession this week? It's a TV show that actually you can watch on Max, formerly HBO Max. Uh, oh and I mean, I thought you, when you said Max, I was like, oh, I can watch it on my Macintosh. I, I have to have two of them, though. Yeah, weird. <laughs> Plural Max. Yes, it, it takes two to, to be able to watch it. No, uh, it's a show called Fired on Mars. Have you uh, ever heard of it? I have heard of it, but I have not seen it. So Fired on Mars actually came to me by way of a friend of the show, friend of yours, friend of mine, Bill Totolo. Bill Totolo sent me a text. He's like, have you watched this Fired on Mars? And, you know, it's a uh, animated show. I don't immediately gravitate towards everything that's animated. So uh, I... Although you know, twice in a week you did talk about uh, Across the Spider-Verse. But yeah, go on. I, I know I did. Well, twice in two weeks. So maybe I need to rethink my life because uh, clearly I've, I'm enjoying a lot of uh, animated stuff lately. Well, Fired on Mars does not have the same sort of like art artistry as let's say spider-man it feels like something more like out of you'd see like out of a comic strip rather than out of a comic book and it doesn't have a ton of big names as voice actors but there are a couple of huge ones of course luke wilson is the lead and i can't help but kind of imagine idiocracy every time i hear his character speak which is kind of fun and then um there is a wonderful supporting cast of characters on there too including leslie david baker who most people would remember as stanley in the office he, he's he does a voice on the show, but it's a rather improbable premise in which a graphic designer gets a job on Mars and there's a big corporation that is, uh, started a an outpost on Mars and it's a one-way trip for all these people and it kind of follows this graphic designer's life and actually getting fired from his job and then you know because you're in a colony of settlers essentially what happens when you get fired from your job and there's nowhere for you to go that's kind of what the the show's about and he does kind of get another job and each episode gets a little bit more out there and crazier than the last and uh, I gotta say I'm really enjoying it I'm more than halfway through now and I have no idea how it's going to end, which is kind of wonderful. It's great when you don't know how a show is going to end. Mm. And I would say for someone who's out there who's looking for something that's a little bit on the lighter side, I'm quite enjoying it. And I think you might, too. Excellent. Excellent. So, Ben, that's just about going to do it for our show today. Who do we have to thank who's responsible for making this show happen? Uh, well, we should definitely thank Alana Cody for keeping up with all the kick-ass interviews. We have uh, some pretty amazing ones still coming up. We should thank, again, as always, Ben Katz, who uh, tirelessly works to make us not sound like dopes. To make us sound dope, but not like dopes. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yes, yes. Some wor <laughs> some some Gen X, Gen Z wordplay there. Mm -hmm. Um and last but not least, uh, Kay's Alatrachi, who uh, hopefully is very excited about the plug we just gave for his video. Hopefully he'll he'll get some extra views on that, but who created every scrap of music that you've heard on the podcast and was even on social media musing about using some new board or something to create some new music for us. So uh, yeah, we've been I know. That, talking that, for at least two or three yeah. years about him creating a couple new tracks for us. So Ilya, where can people find you before we go? Uh, they can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. You want to reach out to me directly, you can also try LinkedIn. I'm getting a, you know, a fair number of people flowing through LinkedIn lately. Turns out I've got like thousands of followers there. Who knew? So uh, I'm going to try and lean into that. And I've been sharing the podcast there and it's been getting actually some good responses. So, hey, LinkedIn, Excellent. look look at you guys coming back from wherever you went to and, you know, really making, making moves. 
They never went anywhere. Like while while you've got uh, Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk and uh, Zuckerberg uh, vying for the future of of social media, LinkedIn is just a rock. Yeah, has, stay in the course. Steady as she goes. Changed. Yeah, I don't even know who owns LinkedIn. That, that's that's uh, uh, Microsoft. Microsoft bought them, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, they, yeah. very very twenty cool. twenty six billion or something. I heard it was a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing. Wow. Anyway. I know it was some major, major purchase. It was huge. There's like yeah. things going on at a monetary uh, scale that I will just never understand. But yeah, that's, uh, I that, guess that's a lot of zeros. Yeah. I mean, so it, ben, it's, where it's can not Twitter find... money, but still. No, it's half of Twitter money. But half know, of Twitter. Still. I bought it for half, just half of Twitter. Uh, you can find me at benrock.com. You can find all my social medias. Although uh, I don't believe that uh, Squarespace yet has enabled linking to threads or blue sky, but uh, you know, I'm sure that's coming and uh, I'm still on Twitter. I don't know. I'll hang out there till the place burns down. It's, it seems like it's coming down pretty fast, honestly. Well, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with threads. There have been all kinds of stories lately about uh, Twitter's traffic tanking. I don't know if that's verified by any, anyone, but, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. Meta's Twitter is, uh, I know that we're the, kind of the end of the podcast where we don't really opine about anything, but Twitter has become so shitty. I mean, it, <laughs> if, if it yeah. started like this, no one would have ever joined it. Yeah, it's definitely a shit show, for sure. Oof. Right, anyway, so, so Ben, I think that just about does it for this episode. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.